Welcome, welcome to Freaked Out with your co-hosts, Liz and Landon. What's up, everybody? We are so glad to finally get the opportunity to host this episode. So sorry about the delay, guys. Unfortunately, we had a very annoying, catastrophic move. And unfortunately, two days after we moved and exhausted, our AC broke. And we didn't have anything in the middle of a heat wave for like... A good almost three days and then we got sick and it was just a nightmare so we're glad to finally be back on track absolutely well i'm not interested in wasting any more time since this case is a large case so we're going to try to get through all the details and get that out of the way absolutely now we will be covering the episode of susan cox powell today she did right away by the way indicate that She was very pissed off by the last name Powell at the end of her life, and she doesn't want me to say the name more than what I've already done, so I will be honoring her wishes. Well, I don't blame her. Now, on Monday, December 7, 2009, in West Valley City, Utah, a daycare owner was concerned as she was waiting the arrival of Susan and Josh's children at 6.30 a.m. Nobody ended up showing up. Now, this daycare owner called them constantly, trying to figure out where either one of them were. Even contacted Susan's work, but Susan did not answer, and neither did Josh. Josh's job said that he had yet to show up, so she decided to go by the house and see what was going on, since this was very unlike them, and Susan always calls in case something was going on. Now, she did end up knocking on the door. No one answered. Unfortunately, she did not hear anything, so she called Josh's sister, Jennifer, and then Jennifer and Jennifer's mother arrived at their home pretty much right away. Jennifer called the police. The police got there pretty quickly. Since everyone was extremely concerned for the safety, they broke in through a window and still no one was inside the home. They checked the garage and they found the family vehicle was gone which was odd since neither one of them had called off for work. They did find a few things that seemed to be unusual. They found Susan's purse in the home alongside with her wallet, her keys, and a small key. Her boots were still there. And yes, that small key is an important factor later on. Now, they did notice two box fans facing the couch, Looks like the couch had just been recently cleaned, but the carpets had not been cleaned. Well, let's also mention that Susan and Josh are Mormons, and they had a pretty big array of family and friends, and the word spread pretty quickly, and everyone that knew them gathered at their home. Susan's friends had suggested that Josh had recently won a camera, and maybe they had gone to the mountains to take photos. Everyone used to think these two were a perfect match based on their love for birds. I'm not a big fan of birds. Obviously, I would could like them, but that's cool. <laughs> you definitely don't like birds. Now, Susan had a sister, Denise, and they actually both raised birds as kids. And Josh was 24 and Susan was 19 when they met. Josh actually had a parrot and they had actually ended up meeting at a Mormon singles event. Now, Josh grew up in an LDS family and the family the mom the dad started to have a lot of problems it got so bad that they ended up getting a divorce very ugly divorce and the father obtained raising most of the children 
Yeah, from the sounds of it, Josh's father made her seem pretty unstable, and that's why he was able to easily obtain the children. Now, as time grew on, people around the couple felt like Josh was a bit of a weirdo. Josh had an obsessive personality. He had a very know-it-all kind of attitude. And in order for people to hang out with Susan, they would have to hang out with Josh. A lot of people were very turned off by his energy. Regardless, everyone seemed to continue to support the couple. They were only together for eight months and they got married in 2001. Now, here's an important detail. They wanted to save money so that they could purchase a home. So they decided to stay at Josh's father's house for a short time. That didn't last too long because Josh's father had a very dirty secret. Now, Stephen Powell had a very concerning obsession with his daughter-in-law, Susan. She caught him constantly trying his hardest to catch her changing, taking pictures of her, taking her panties, even her tampons, and keeping them. What the fuck? Susan is showing me that this was only the beginning. She wanted me to get right into this situation so people understood exactly what took place. Now, before the two of them... Susan and Josh were married. Stephen was always trying to convince her, his hardest, to like, you know, talk to her as much as he could. And of course, because she was trying to impress, you know, her father-in-law, she would converse with him. Conversations started to get weirder and weirder as time progressed. He would say things like, I can see your panties or you have a nice bra strap color on. And this was all before the two of them even got married. And she was actually not interested in moving in with him at all. But it looks like Josh pushed her in that direction. Josh would then go to work and sometimes her schedule wasn't consistent with his schedule. So she'd be home alone with Stephen quite a few different times. That is messed up. I can only imagine what other creepy little things he did with her stuff or her in general. Right? There are things that Josh didn't even hear or know about. Susan shows me that she had to physically reject Stephen many times. He would put his hands on her knees. He would ask her if she wanted to try on handcuffs. He would talk about his sexual encounters with his ex-wife. He would talk about how he never got a proper blowjob and sexual relationship. And, you know, obviously being Mormon and I don't know, it was just awful. And he would treat her nice and I guess in a creepy way, she put up with it. But then he started to say things like, I'm in love with you. And Josh doesn't know how good he has it. And he even offered her an affair. Jesus. Did he ever make any like serious passes at her? Oh, yeah. He groped her. He smacked her ass. He did a lot of little things. She did tell Josh some of this stuff, but mostly she kept it in. Why would she keep that to herself? There were many different reasons, but from what she shows me, the main reason was because he would tell her that his father was his idol. And although they didn't have the best relationship throughout the years, he was trying to improve on his relationship with dad. So he would basically tell Susan that she must be doing something to attract his father's attention. And she said he also didn't believe her at times or think she was exaggerating. She really felt extremely alone and she didn't want her family to think she married a buffoon. So she kept it all hidden. She did have a friend, though. I think it was somebody outside of her organization. Yep, I'm going to say it's somebody who 
was not part of her church. Maybe a neighbor? Actually, exactly a neighbor. (laughs) She would confide in her. She seems like she was a little bit older, maybe in her 60s. She had very short hair. I think she might have been suffering from an illness. Now, she would usually wear like a handmade woolen poncho over her shoulders. And the reason Susan felt comfortable with her was because this neighbor had like uncomfortable interactions with Stephen in the past. Is this woman still around today? No, she isn't, sadly. She died about two or three years ago. Which is surprising because she was sick, but they do hang out now, actually. And this woman feels bad for not stepping up and saying something at the time. She was there, though, when Stephen did end up getting arrested. Now, as things progress, obviously things started to escalate more and more. So they were finally able to move and buy a home near his mother and his sister in Utah. Things started to go back to normal. At least that's how she positioned it. She says that although her relationship with Josh was extremely toxic from the beginning, because the father was gone, she was like in a more happier place. And her concerns about Josh were less than they were about her father-in-law. Now, in 2005, she gave birth to Charlie, her son. And in 2007, she gave birth to her second son, Brayden, and she was very happy being a mom and really gave her all into being a mother. She shows me that as soon as she got pregnant with Charlie, he started to become extremely violent towards her. In fact, he punched her and kicked her while she was pregnant and their son on multiple occasions. Now, she became extremely concerned. She shows me that the reason he would hurt her was because of things like the house wasn't clean and the way he wanted it to be. He punched her because she received some male attention from people in the grocery store or whatever that may be. And they were constantly fighting. She shows me that she felt that this was God's way of teaching her a lesson. So she carried on with this relationship, even though she had a feeling that things were going to get worse. Now, let's go back to the day that she went missing. As people were sitting outside wondering what's going on, approximately 12 hours later, Josh finally rolls up with the kids. The police obviously asked Josh where he had been and also what he was doing and where Susan was. From what Susan shows me, Josh was stunned. He thought that he'd be able to get back home and no one would be like worrying about it. But according to Susan, he made too many mistakes. Josh tells them that he went and took the boys winter camping at approximately midnight the night before. Sounds a little fishy to me. Why would you take your children at midnight? On a Sunday. (laughs) This completely fabricated story, you could tell that he was lying even in the way he said it. Now they asked him why he would do that right before the winter storm had come in. And he told them that he would do this all the time. It wasn't uncommon for him. I mean, it seems strange to anybody. The police then questioned him on why he didn't answer his phone, and he said that was because he was trying to conserve the battery because he didn't have a charger, but the police officer could see that there was a charger in the vehicle. They asked where Susan was, and he said that she should be at work. How convenient. My question on this is, if in fact this is accurate, which it wasn't, but if it was, you didn't have a conversation with your wife all day even though you had the kids, like you didn't check in on her? I don't know. I mean, absolutely. Everyone was trying to reach out to her, even in the moment he wasn't even trying to reach her. They were able to get in touch with a woman by the name of Giovanna. Now, she 
told everyone that she was actually with the Powells the night before. She had stated that once a month, she and Susan would get together and do some really cool knitting projects. She said that they had just seemed like a normal day. Josh was fixing food for the kids and everyone seemed to be okay. No one was having any escalated issues whatsoever. Still, the police were very suspicious of Josh, as they should be, so they decided to bring him in for some questioning, as they should. He didn't have anyone to give his kids to, so he had them present during the interrogation. Yikes. Now, he claims that he seen her at approximately midnight, and he told her that he was going to take the boys to have some s'mores, and then she apparently ended up going to bed. Yeah. Approximately 12.30, while he loaded the car, the detective asked him why he would do this on a Sunday night. And, you know, he had work the next day and he claims that he forgot it was Sunday. Oh, geez, how convenient. He just conveniently forgets what day of the week it is. Exactly. Now, I've never in my life forgotten when it was a Sunday or if I had to work the next day. At some point, he would have to have seen that it was Monday somewhere, like on his phone or something. I don't understand. Well, the police kept pressing on and he kept saying that she was at work. And the police were like, no, she isn't at work. And he didn't really have any concern for his wife in any capacity. Now he had a bunch of stuff in his truck to confirm his story of actually going camping. So then they asked him to come again the next day without his kids so that they can do another interrogation. They would ask him, do you know anyone who would want to hurt her? And he had no idea. He had no remorse, no concern. He didn't even want to help look for her. His biggest upset was that the daycare teacher had a key to get in the house, but the police broke a window to get in, and that was more upsetting to him than anything else. Which, I guess, makes sense with his concern about the house, as you said earlier, when Susan wouldn't get the opportunity to, you know, clean the home properly, he would, you know, get mad at her. The police officers then decided to take a different approach. They didn't want the kids there, but they also didn't want him to know that they were going to ask the kids some questions. Now, Charlie is the oldest son, and he was very verbal, and when they were asking him questions, they asked who they went camping with. Charlie said that he went camping with his mom and his dad and his little brother. Then he had mentioned that his mom had stayed at the camping. That mom stayed where the crystals were because that's where she wanted to go. After this, they decided to question him again about what the kids said. And of course, he said the kids were lying and that this was very common because they lied constantly. I mean, yeah, kids lie. But seriously, I don't think your kid's lying about that, man. Right. Now, that is when Josh became suspect number one. Obviously, they had to investigate the home now, so Josh was not able to go inside while they were investigating. He had a lot of computer equipment, and they can only find a very small amount of blood, perhaps maybe from a nosebleed. They asked him where he went with the kids, and he said that he went to Simpson Springs, but the police could not find anything there. Now, from what Susan shows me, they did not go to the Simpson Springs. That was the fake location that he coerced with his father about, but we'll get back to that a little later. When they went to look at Simpson Spring area, they were not able to find anything. Shocker. As there was a lot of snow around the ground, so they couldn't find tire tracks or anything just to suggest that maybe someone was there or not. 
When they pulled up the evidence from his home, they found his computers had encryptions on it. They were not able to get into any of his computers because they had been locked down pretty significantly. Now, since he had given them absolutely nothing surrounding this investigation, they suggested that he was a person of interest on December 16th. So he also refused to give a DNA sample as well. All this police heat was affecting him, so he ended up packing up the kids and moving back to Washington in the middle of the night without telling anyone. Another big shocker. Man's in trouble. He's going to go run now. (laughs) He went to his father's house, and that's the father that had sexualized and harassed his daughter-in-law, Susan, in the past. Now let's stop here for a short period of time and talk about what happened before we carry on to the next part of the story. All right, we can do that. Now, what happened with Josh and Susan the day that she went missing? From what I see, things did not escalate on Sunday. Things actually escalated on Saturday. I know that the friend Giovanna was there during, you know, that time doing the knitting project, but they were actually having a couple of issues before she had arrived. But from the looks of it, Susan had begged him to be on his best behavior while she was here so that the woman did not become concerned about anything. A few of her friends would say that he would expect her to be able to feed a whole household on $10 a week or a little bit more than that a week, but basically she really had enough. She was at a point where she wanted to leave him. She shows me that she did have a male friend, and he was exactly that, a friend. Could have been someone that she worked with. I keep seeing it was like a flower shop associated with this guy but I don't exactly understand what the flower shop represents anyways she shows me that this guy was somebody she could talk to because he had no association to her family or her religion or her friends or anything along those lines it was a platonic relationship with no attraction whatsoever and he was married and he also had kids so she just wanted to kind of put that out there now I believe from the sounds of it as soon as her friend had left for the evening the two of them had started to have an argument again she was finally standing up to him as to what she wanted she told him that if he didn't stop controlling her she was going to leave him now she did show me that she had already known that he would be escalated by this She wanted to do this for a couple of months now, which is why she kind of set up this safety deposit box, which we'll talk about a little later. But she said she was preparing because she knew that this could go very badly. While you were speaking, I saw someone like bending over, like a woman bending over, smelling like sunflowers at a shop and like a guy coming out and being very friendly and stuff. And then this woman consistently stopping there. It's probably like a safe haven for her, and then that's maybe how they got started talking. Right, started being friends. That's a good point. Thank you. Now, was she worried that he was going to, like, physically hurt her or the kids? She was, but she was going to try. Now, she shows me that he had been physically abusive towards her kids as well, and she would not be surprised if, in fact, he would hurt them at this point. But she decided she was going to let him know that if he didn't straighten up, she was walking out the door. She said that that was honestly the biggest mistake she could have ever made she was trying to avoid fighting with him so she approached him in a very calm collective manner she basically told him she didn't want her kids to grow up in the same type of environment that he had grown up with the parents constantly hating each other and having a very difficult relationship 
I saw that he agreed with her and he didn't want to have a bad relationship with his kids. And then she started talking about their relationship. He was really upset. In fact, he didn't want to hear about it anymore. Now, the kids were already in bed and she's telling me he kept his voice down because the kids were sleeping. And also she didn't want him to get rowdy. So she didn't escalate it any further. But she kept asking him to like calm down, quiet down because he started to kind of get a little louder, which is why things escalated more and more because she was kind of telling him what to do. Now, I see that he started to choke her and I see that she had been choked by him before, but she had learned some self-defense moves. And I'm thinking flower shop guy has something to do with it. So she was able to get herself out of this chokehold. She shows me that it only made him more and more angry. Now, she didn't learn everything in self-defense. This was like, I don't know, just a few moves. She didn't get the opportunity to do just about everything. Well, she sounds like a real badass trying to deflect and protect herself from this deranged dude that she has to call her husband. She actually really is. And I do want to touch on that just a brief moment. During this time of when I was trying to communicate with her, it was like I had this big ball in the way. I could see her. I could hear her. But something was in front of her. I couldn't figure out what the hell it was. Then I realized as I carried on, he was trying to like silence her yet again. He also tried some shenanigans, but... I'm getting good at being able to like dodge the bad spirits. He also obviously did not cross over, but she has. And the moment she died, like a fire grew inside of her. And anytime he would just try to silence her now, she stands up for herself with this big fury, like angry flames kind of way. It's hard to explain, but even when he tries to silence her, her voice is much louder. Wow, that is very interesting. You know, how many of the murderers always try to interfere after they pass on lots? <sighs> Too many to count. They want these details, you know, taken to the grave. And this is basically why they stop and try to, like, you know, prevent things from coming out. I probably would be more spooked back in the day, which is why I'm glad I started doing these types of cases a little later. Because, honestly, I think I would have been scared four years ago. Well, what happened next? This is extremely tough to share, but from what I can see, he had been angry because she was able to get herself out of this chokehold and he wanted to prove his manhood. So he decided he was going to fight her like a man, man to man. I see that he punched her on the left side of her temple and then she kind of got dizzy in that moment and then he punched her on the other side of her temple. I don't feel like she fell on top of anything, but she shows me she might have hit like a coffee table definitely something with like a sharp edge that kind of cracked the back of her skull and she did fall backwards a little bit there was a lot of blood it looks like the blood didn't really get anywhere on the floor but it did get more so on like the couch it looks like the way she fell she landed a little bit on the couch she also hit her head at the same time so she shows me she got knocked out by this second punch and she said she didn't really feel the crack in the back of her head at all, actually. Did he try and help her at all? No, actually, she shows me she was still alive and she could hear him in the background screaming at her to get the hell up. 
kicking her and pulling her arm and telling her she needed to be a woman and stop trying to take a man's role and it wasn't for her fighting against him he wouldn't have done this she shows me that the blow to the head was significantly the main reason she ended up dying but she shows me that she could have definitely been saved but instead he kept her there afraid of what was coming next she shows me that her brain was slowly bleeding out and it looked like she might have been sleeping so he let her sleep it off and he went to bed and like just left her there like that were the kids awake at all during this time no actually thank god not at all the kids were sleeping and were not disrupted in any way in fact he had such a great night's sleep that the kids woke up first the kids came down and noticed their mom laying on the couch bleeding and cold i can see both kids ran up to their father's room jumped on him to wake him up because mommy was not waking up and mommy looked like she was sick well meanwhile he could have saved her life you know Yeah, and she shows me that she had died at some point in the evening. She said that she was in and out of consciousness, but mostly out of it. Now, she did try to get up, but her head prevented her from doing so. She shows me she had a seizure a few times, and she had slightly moved, but then ultimately a stroke took place, and she died from that. Now, when these kids went to check on their mom, obviously they didn't know that, you know, that meant that she was dead. Oh, yeah, definitely not. He decided in that moment to wake up and he was going to clean up the mess and figure out what his next steps were going to be. Now, what's interesting is I can see that he had some sort of like burner phone. They always have burner phones. I think this phone was something he had as like an emergency with his father. I'm not exactly sure. This guy was super paranoid, hence the encrypted freaking computer files. But he contacted his dad, and of course, he told his father what took place. He may have even sent something over the computer. I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, his father lived approximately 12 hours from where he lived in Utah. So I see that his father made a suggestion for them to kind of like meet in the middle. So it looked as though Josh cleaned up the evidence as much as he possibly could very early on, loaded the kids in the vehicle, and took off six hours away from where he lived. He also had placed Susan in the back of the trunk told the kids that mommy was not feeling well and she needed to take a nap somewhere she could lay down and of course these kids were young so they bought the story so if he didn't go to the simpson park where did he end up going i keep swinging around idaho now i know the kids had mentioned in their interview that mom was with the crystals i keep hearing and seeing purple over and over again because it was the color of the crystals the kids had seen when i look that up the most common areas in idaho for a purple stone was an amethyst and there are three in particular antelope creek pull creek and big lost river now did any of these spots make any sense to you as to where he might have went It would be a lot easier if I was there in person, but from what I gather, the one that gave me the most tingly feelings is the Antelope Creek, but I'm not 100% sure on this. One day, I'm hoping to go to the area. She shows me she was disposed in something high. He and dad had taken the kids and also a wheelbarrow or something that would be easily lit on fire. They lit her remains on fire, so I'm assuming they poured gasoline on her. But the looks of it, the father was the one who placed her in the area, and he made Josh and the kids go elsewhere while he disposed of her body. Now, did the kids end up seeing any of this? Oh, yeah. 
Father and son told the boys that mommy wanted to go on vacation, and I believe Charlie kept asking questions about his mother because he was worried, but they said that she was going on a vacation, and since he had seen gemstones, the amethyst, he envisioned that his mom was having a nice shower with the crystals, and then the father and kids went to eat somewhere special, some sort of dinner, I believe, Good old grandpa explained a story about their mother to make it seem like she was just, you know, vacationing. That's pretty disturbing. It even gets worse. I believe that Steve did something sexual to her body before he disposed of it. Ugh. That is extremely disturbing. Now, what happened next? They came up with their elaborate story. Now, I believe they did end up staying in some sort of hotel for the evening. I don't see the kids went camping, but I do feel like... They may have, you know, elaborated on that story. He did not want to deal with the kids in any sort of wintry location because they were pretty whiny about it. Anyways, I feel like they went to maybe breakfast as well. I feel like the father told him that everyone's going to start looking at him soon and just ignore his phone. I believe he shut his phone off and put it maybe on airplane mode. I'm not entirely sure, but they did that so that nobody could trace where he had been. Steve told Josh not to give any sort of DNA because DNA will screw him one way or another because she's his wife. The DNA is going to be all over her anyway. And then they just decided to drive back? Pretty much. I believe his father went back to his home and that is basically what took place over those couple of days. Well, now stepping into the future a little bit more, it looks like Susan's husband was then given the benefit of the doubt by the family of Susan. But that did not stop Josh. Once he had an interview with the police, he denied assisting in any capacity and then fled back to Washington with his two children in tow. He and his father eventually came up with their own elaborate story of what took place, which of course took months and months to prepare. They talked about how she was having an affair with somebody running off with them because there was another person by the name of Stephen Koser who was also missing. Josh spread lies about his wife being emotionally abused as a child by her parents and that's when the family had enough. Now the family of Susan was over it, I don't blame them, and went on record and decided to fight back against Josh and the nonsense that he was spewing. Now Susan's friends started to come forward and talk about the abuse that she had been enduring during their relationship and how she didn't want her family members to know too much about it because she didn't want to alarm her family. I know they were trying to protect the kids because they just lost their mother in some capacity and they wanted to make sure they didn't, like, you know, lose their father. But I feel that all of these stories should have come out a little sooner about the kind of person he was. I feel like it would have been crucial and critical and I feel like it could have helped solve this case. I also feel like there were a few witnesses along the way that didn't step forward that could have led them to Susan's body. Absolutely. Now, some of the stories included were that when it was time for Susan to go to the hospital and give birth to their first son, he didn't care. He told her and the family that he will get to the hospital when he has time and that he needed to finish up whatever he was doing on his computer. He eventually showed up at the hospital hours later, still engaging in on his computer activities, even 90 minutes in. Allegations of abuse just kept on rolling through. And like I said, I wish they had said something earlier. Now she would often contact her friends, ask them for like food, like hot dogs, because she didn't have any money to buy food to feed her children. 
he would stock up on food for himself, but he did not want to share anything with his family. They had a joint bank account. He would change the pin on the card so she couldn't use it. She had to hide money. Meanwhile, he would be spending money on nonsense like electronics, toy cars, and his computers. Now, he also had a thousand pounds of wheat in the basement. Do we know why? Religious reasons about running out of food, but it was an excessive amount. She found it odd. I mean, that is odd. Why do you have that without having like a cow or a horse or something? Well, later on, Scott Hardman stepped forward, indicating that he had a conversation with Josh and that he said that in order to get rid of a body, you would have to put it down a mine shaft in a vertical way because they are unstable. Crystal mine shaft. That's where I feel like the body was up high and pushed down with the gasoline poured on her. Maybe even a burlap sack or two. This is just crazy. The story is like tragically still not over even by a long shot. And the kids were also murdered by their father. Yes. And we want to be able to get to that part of the story as well. But sadly, we just have to wait until next time. We will be having a second part of the episode. And there's a lot more on Susan and the kids in this one. If you have yet to listen to the Timothy Fitzin episode, this episode also will be dropping today on the exclusive side. And until next time, guys, stay freaked out.